Welcome back to the Fatherly Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein, and I think I'm a funny guy. But in my household, I'm the only one who thinks I'm a funny guy. Not to say I'm not, because when I leave, everyone thinks I'm funny. I'm like charming, and I'm funny, and I'm witty, or whatever. But my kids think I'm bullshit and not funny. And it's a little bit bruising to just constantly be making jokes to an unappreciative audience of people you love who are five and six years old. Anyway, so um, this episode's all about how to make your kids think you're funny. So I called up two people who know what funny is and know how to entertain kids. The first one is Alan Zola Kronzak. He's a professional magician, a speaker, and author, most recently of Grandpa Magic, which is a new book with 116 tricks that are really easy to do and keep your kids entertained, like how to sniff a marker up your nose and it comes out your ear. Later we'll hear from Barnett Kelman, a writer and director who's worked in film and TV and drama for years. He's worked on programs like Murphy Brown, Ally McBeal, ER. He worked with Gene Wilder on the show Something Wilder. It's amazing, we're going to talk about Gene later in the program. Now he's a Robin Williams Endowed Chair of Comedy at the University of Southern California. He's literally Dr. Comedy. He has three kids, and he actually knows what the secret is to make kids laugh. But first, let's talk to Alan. Welcome to the Fatherly Podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. So my guest is Alan Zola Kronzik. He is a magician and author of Grandpa Magic. How to hypnotize a napkin, bounce a dinner roll, remove your thumb, make a spoon cry, even read minds. Hi, Alan. Hi, nice to meet you. Is that a nickname? You are Grandpa Magic, or is it magic for grandpas? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't meant to be a nickname, but it seems to be sticking, and I seem to be becoming him. Um, as I was writing <laughs> this book, the title in my mind was Ama- Amazing Grandparents, or Amazing Grandpa. The idea, uh, the hook on the book was how to relate to your grandkids through magic, uh, magic being a, a new way to really light up the kids and find ways to connect. How did you get interested in magic as a as a youngster? Um, I got a magic kit uh, when I was about eight or nine. That was one element. Even earlier, though, um, every Saturday night, uh, we would go to my father's parents' house, visiting that side of the, the grandparents. Yeah, a big family, had many brothers. And um, my uncle was there, and pretty much every week before he went out on the town with his best friend, Jerry, Jerry would show me this only magic trick he knew, which was to take a penny, put it on his fingertip, snap his finger, and the coin was gone. And I had a clue where that went, and I wanted to know. And he would torture me with that week after week, and to his credit, he would never tell. But um, he got a hook into me there about, this is very strange, this is very cool, I would like to do this. And, and the third thing was uh, seeing a uh, magician perform at a uh, Cub Scout uh, blue and gold banquet when I was whatever, 10 or 11. And uh, I thought, that's really cool. To, it's wonderful to make things appear and disappear and float in thin air. I'd like to do that. 
And so I just pursued it. And my uh, parents were very supportive. I had a, as a kid, a heart murmur. So I didn't do competitive sports and I uh, couldn't excel in sports, but they thought, well, maybe you can excel at this or being a, a musician. But it turned out magician over musician. So I just kept pursuing and pursuing, uh, and I haven't stopped since. Where did you raise your family? In Sag Harbor, Long Island, New York. I was a stay-at-home dad, and my wife was a writer. So I spent a lot of time um, with our daughter. Uh, and even though I didn't entertain her with magic tricks, uh, we had a, a terrific relationship, you know. Um, and you co-wrote a book with her later in life. Absolutely. Yeah, she was a, a early, um, she loved reading, and she loved thinking, and she loved books. And so it was not difficult, you know, to do story time all the time and to go buy books and relate in, in that way. What was it like to be the, like, the Sag Harbor stay-at-home dad magician. It's like a very niche and very interesting and intriguing profession. I know that if one of my kids' friends' dads was a magician, I would never cease to ask questions about it. Was that your experience? Um, at that time, I wasn't a magician. Uh, I mean, I, I did magic socially and for friends, but uh, after college, um, I supported myself as a freelance writer. I had a trunk load of stuff and um, brought it up here, and people, um, I had mentioned I had an interest in magic. Oh, my, my son is having a birthday party. Would you do a show? Well, I had done, yeah. I had done shows for years as a teenager, you know. So I unpack all my stuff, and now I do a show, and it's wonderful. It's a kid's show. And then I do another kid's show, and now somebody says, you know, I, um, there's a great magazine called Cricket. Uh, you should write a um, magic article for them. Um, this was a, she was an agent. So she approaches Cricket, and Cricket says, sure. So I start writing a series for them, um, which I call The Secrets of Alcazar. And that turns into a book. I never wanted to be a Las Vegas magician. I love the book as a way to relate to my own kids. Of, and, of course. And I kind of wanted to talk to you about that, because I think I'm a funny guy. But within the four walls of my own home, my kids do not think I'm funny. Like, I just can't entertain them. So I was selfishly excited to, about your book because I figured if I can make a straw disappear up my nose and out my mouth, at least I'll have a fighting chance. Absolutely. It's, it's a place to start. I'm, I'm not sure I would start with the geekiest stuff, but uh, <laughs> how old are they again? Your kid's five? Five and six. And you actually talk about that in your book, there being like a uh, continental divide at age six between believers and skeptics. Yes, and they're still on the believing side a little, yes? Actually, you know what happened is yesterday at dinner, I tried to do that straw. You inhale the straw. Right. And it, the straw got caught on my sleeve. And so I actually did shove it up my nose. <laughs> And uh, sure. then my nose started bleeding, and <laughs> and I was like on the verge of tears. And my kids were like, "Is that is that the trick that you cry and bleed?" And I was like, "No, this is terrible. I have liability insurance, thank God, but um, <laughs> this, this, nothing like this has ever happened before." Let me ask you this: How much did you practice beforehand? Zero. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I tried practicing. I, 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 you know, now I'm down. 
I got it down. I have that one trick down, and I have the um, the snorting straw trick, the picking up the straw um, with your four fingers, right, and the uh, telekinetic straw on top of a salt shaker, which is amazing, and that's like the intersection of science and magic, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's what I love about that trick, and it's also such a great mysterious trick that feels magical to do. You really do have powers. You know, you put your yeah. hands near the straw and it moves. Were you ever, not grandpa magic, but like dad magic? I did magic a lot when I had my daughter and she grew up in a, in a home in which um, she knew her dad was a magician. I showed things to her friends from time to time, but she had very little interest um, in learning to do magic. I could show her the tricks and she enjoyed the tricks. And what she got out of magic, which I wanted her to get out of magic, forget about being a performer, was being a rational skeptic. And knowing a lot about magic and how magic works and how people see things you, it is conducive to being a rational skeptic, which she turned out to be. So I'm very happy about that. It's hard to entertain your own kids. Like you said that you used to do tricks for your daughter's friends. Like, I'm pretty sure my son's friends think I'm much cooler than my sons think I'm cool. All of the visual magic um, they should like. I mean, if you, make, if you can make coins appear and disappear um, in a very convincing way, it will be very astonishing to them. And I think they'll think you're very, very cool. Um, and it's not all that difficult, but it, I wouldn't do it the first day I read the instructions, you know. Um, right. I got overly excited. And, yeah. And, you know, because all of the magic stuff takes practice. The, the very first trick in the book, which is called How to Pull Any Small Object Out of Thin Air, is, is a very amazing trick. You show both hands empty. Uh, they really are. You tug up your sleeves a little, reach into space, uh, mime having an invisible object which you place in your hand and have your kids say magic words and you uncuff your hands and something's there that wasn't there before like a small piece of candy that's all wrapped up or a crumpled hundred dollar bill if you're you know a rich grandpa anybody who wants to actually read that without buying the book uh you can go to uh, grandpamagic.net and there's a look inside feature and that's the first trick that's that's taught and explained what is your uh, take on how kids perceive magic? I mean, you perform for thousands of kids as an educator. I differentiate in the book between believers and skeptics. So the believers are the seven and under, maybe six and under set. And if I do magic for them, make uh, pennies melt through their hands or just pluck coins out of thin air and they disappear, uh, or do this opening piece where you produce a piece of candy, they're going to believe I can do this for real. And uh, that's okay. Uh, but when they're eight or nine, seven or eight, and become rational, yeah, as you say, they want to know. And they understand that there's a trick there, which it, for me makes it much more interesting to do um, because... They know what you're doing is impossible. For the little ones, they don't know that it's impossible. It's not impossible. You're doing it. But for the ones who know it's impossible, uh, it's a higher level of, of wonder, you know, which is what you want to, right. um, in, the, 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 that's the goal, is to produce feelings of wonder and amazement. 
And in order to do that, a person has to have some idea of what's possible and what isn't possible. So when they know it's not possible, then it happens, and everything about their perceptual system tells you that just happened. I just saw this. So how is this possible? That's a wonderful thing. When you get too young and you're trying to have an absurdist sense of humor with your kid or even with toys or media where you have like talking talking cows and, you know, <laughs> vegetables with faces, if the kid is so young, they don't even know that cows don't talk. It's not like funny. There's nothing to push up against right. because they're too <laughs> green in the world. In the same way, not to say that the believers are are less than ideal because every child is perfect child of God. But like if they don't even know that this, you know, if they don't aren't familiar with is what's generally possible and what's generally impossible, the trick doesn't have that much. It doesn't land that hard. But when you have a kid who knows it's impossible and still sees it, that's like the sweet spot. Yeah, or at least it's uh, it's one of the sweet spots because the other the other thing though, um, the previous one where they do believe it, um, that stays with them for a very long time. It does hit hard. Um, I I have uh, a friend, uh, a doctor who um, had a wonderful daughter going back thirty years. This story goes back thirty years. So there's this wonderful eight year old girl. And I do a, a trick called the pennies, melting pennies, where slowly you count six pennies into the person's hand. They close their hand, and one by one, now I have one, and she had five. Now I have two, she has four. And the pennies seem to melt through her hand. It's a wonderful trick. It's in the book. Anyway, she grows up. She goes to college. She becomes a doctor like her dad. She has three little girls. And a couple of weeks ago, she was back in town visiting her parents, and I went over to meet the three girls, and she said, Alan, remember that trick you showed me with the pennies, you know, where they went through my hand? Would you show them? So um, naturally, the answer is yes. I showed the first little girl. The other ones were saying, maybe, didn't me. But that, that uh, experience stayed with her all this time. Um, because it was very emotional and amazing and um, I think at the time probably believable, but just astonishing. And uh, so that can have an impact too. And that's one way for the, at least one of the hooks of, of, of the grandparent book is that if you can bring that, if you don't see your grandkid very often, if you can bring that and give them that, um, that'll be memorable and it can be the basis of a relationship. We'll hear more from Alan in a minute. First, here's a brief word from our sponsors. How many tricks does it, should a dad have in his back pocket? You begin with two or three, and you master those, and then if they... Uh, produce a desired result, and you can really light up the kid the way you want to, then you learn another one, and then you learn another one. Be the right one for the right moment. If you start doing this stuff for the kids, I'd advise you to do it for other kids as well and, you know, get the hang of of um, what it feels like to do really cool magic that people don't understand. And then 
you go back to the book or whatever your resource is, you learn another one, you learn another one. Is it called a half a half palm when the way you get the um, coin to to disappear into your hand? Well, there's making uh, money. Uh, um, yeah. There's only one palm in the book, and it's called the finger, the palm. finger palm. Finger palm, right? Yes, the finger palm. The finger. Palm. That seems to me like a basic technique that dads should know. If you're going to make things disappear, absolutely. That's, and what and, what purpose is a dad for not doing that? To appear and disappear. The finger palm is good. Yes. And if you haven't tried any of the rubber band stuff first, you could start with the final trick of Ronnie takes a nap, which is the simplest thing. And it's very cute. You know, you just have a, a rubber band sticking out of your fist, most of it, and you, you uh, announce that the rubber band is very, very tired. And he's going to crawl inside and take a nap, say goodnight, and very slowly the rubber band um, crawls inside your fist and you say goodnight to it. And the fact that your hand isn't moving at all, the rubber band seems to have real animation, That's uh, it does have it. That makes it a charming trick for kids and they like it very much. What has a life in magic kind of taught you in terms of larger lessons that you have lived by? Hmm. There is a connection and always has been in the history of magic uh, between uh, magic and rational skepticism. So um, it, magic taught me a way of thinking, and uh, magic also gave me a fairly good understanding of how people perceive the world and reach their conclusions. And uh, in recent years, um, a number of neuroscientists have become very interested in magicians uh, for their understanding how, of how information is processed and what is um, observed and paid attention to and not, and um, phenomena like uh, inattentional blindness where you don't see things that are right in front of you. Magicians have instinctively uh, known about this for centuries and known how to exploit it. And uh, it's only recently that through neuroscience, they've been given a vocabulary in which to describe um, what's happening and how it happens. So um, that's very psychological, obviously. And that's a whole part of magic, the psychology of magic. Seeing people be manipulated, but for ma- I don't mean in a sinister sense. I mean through magic and misdirection and the routine and all this. Does it leave you with... Um, more hope or despair for mankind? Uh, uh, if I had to lean, I'd be leaning towards despair. But uh, <laughs> psychologically, I would rather I would rather not. Um, Why? Uh, I, Why I, I'd be rather I would rather take an enlightened uh, distance point of view and say that there's nothing I can do about the state of the world at this point. And uh, I should just live the rest of my life as best I can. But it is true that, like, doing magic tricks fundamentally, so, uh, even in this book, like, you are practicing the same sort of manipulation that outside of magic is pretty insidious, like misdirection or what, whatever you called it when people are blind to, like, what's right in front of them. You can see that in the real world, not to say magic isn't real, but outside of Sure. No, I mean, there's a, there's a great sharing um, in the principles of deception uh, between magicians and uh, con artists and thieves. Um, 
but and politicians. But the difference is that magicians tell you in front, I'm I'm going to do things that aren't real. I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to uh, cause you to fall under a spell in which you actually believe you're seeing things that aren't really happening. And they aren't really happening. And I'm telling you, they're not really happening. The fact the fact that right. your your sensory system tells you yes they are yes they are happening I'm seeing it that's the experience of magic but you know magicians uh, have throughout history been well in early history magic history in the 16th 17th century um, magicians were uh, frowned upon they had no social standing and they were considered in some ways uh, in the same rank as as uh, um, pickpockets and, and uh, petty thieves because they had, by mistake, but because they had skills of deception. And so that yeah. made them bad people. But uh, around the 19th century, uh, magicians began writing exposés of bad people and explaining how cons worked and how, um, you know, hucksters um, and snake oil salesmen sold their frauds by uh, appearing to enact like instant cures, for example, using trickery and deception. So then magicians became... They distanced themselves. Yeah, yeah, the magicians became the enlightened ones uh, all of a sudden. Houdini was one. Houdini lectured on um, fraudulent spiritualism for many, many years. And uh, the amazing Randy, you know, arch skeptic of um, uh, people like Rory Geller and people who claim to have psychic powers, uh, uh, mediums, uh, John Edward, those kind of people. use all of these deceptive techniques to lie and steal and cheat people. Us magicians, we're, we're honest. Alan, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Fatherly Podcast. I implore all of our listeners to go buy Grandpa Magic, how to hypnotize a napkin, balance a dinner roll, remove your thumb, make a spoon cry, even read minds by Alan Zola Kronzik. Thanks, Alan. Thanks so much. Take care. When I'm at dinner and I want my kids to laugh, he has given me like 20 things to do to make them laugh. But I'm still pretty curious about why they laugh and what I can do to make them laugh and what's the theory underpinning all of that. That's why I wanted to talk to Barnett Kelman, who's the Robin Williams Endowed Chair of Comedy at the USC. The man has studied and worked in comedy for decades, longer than I've been alive. He's got three kids. He knows what funny is coolest thing about Barnett. He worked with Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder is my hero. This is like secondhand Gene Wilder stories. It's like being in a room with Gene Wilder. And now that you're listening to this, it's like you were in a room with Gene Wilder. Without further ado, here is Barnett Kelman. Hello. Hi, is Barnett there? Barnett is right here speaking. Hi, how's it going? It's Joshua David Stein from the Fatherly Podcast. Well, very nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Doctor, I have a question. (laughs) (laughs) That's why why I'm here, son. What can I tell you? Well, so you are the Robin Williams Endowed Chair of Comedy at the USC. That's right. I am a dad who thought I was funny until I had kids who are five and six. And now they don't think I'm funny. And as someone who has studied and teaches comedy, I just, I, I, I need your diagnosis. I need your, I need an understanding of 
how you see humor and how it relates to kids and why my kids don't think I'm funny? Well, I am going to say they don't think you're funny yet. Oh. That's what I'm going to say. There's going to be like a latent, uh, a latent, a latent appreciation of dad's humor. Beyond a latent appreciation, I think there's an imprinting going on. And I think that they will be stuck with dad's humor for the rest of their lives. And it will certainly resurface with their kids. And then they will have a deep, deep, not only nostalgia, but also kind of appreciation for it. This is my prediction. Is that something that you've, you have two sons, right? I know I have two daughters and a son. I have two three daughters. kids. Okay. And, 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 um, so first of all, look, kids groan at dad's jokes. Of course, kids groan at dad's jokes. Um, why? I think well, they're great. There's, there's two, I think there are two, um, you know, probable areas here. One, one is, well, <laughs> one is you simply have to. It's obligatory. It's an obligatory rebellion. It's an obligatory staking out of one's, you know, one's territory. Right. So I think there's something of that in there. Now, look, part, part, as humor gets, you know, more developed, um, ultimately it's a highly social thing. And it's entirely based on shared references. As a dad, your references are obviously old vis-a-vis your kids. So anything that you bring up that has any specificity whatsoever in terms of verbal humor is going to seem horribly dated. You mean like joking about like the 97 Philadelphia Flyers isn't going to get a... Rise out of it. Well, you can bet on that one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And a million, million other things that you take for granted as the universe, as you know it. And things that you know are as recent as five years ago. Right. You have no sense of how, how that, you know, you can't put your toe in the same river twice. That river has flown and gone. You know, I think that, um, I think that the, the what makes what this makes me realize is it's true that my sons only joke about things like their butts and their penises, things that they carry with them all the time and don't need an external referent. Like <laughs> it's timeless. Well, exactly. And, and, and of course the penis humor, you know, is timeless and universal and will always work, but, but it's not something that, but that's not something you can do with your dad. Right. So that's because that's, that's transgressive. And, you know, though even acknowledging the penis is transgressive, so you, you don't want your dad to transgress. Even, even, even when my dad was, you know, on his deathbed at 92, I cringed if he said anything about his penis. <laughs> and which, as a, as, a, as a fan of comedy, that must be so um, galling, especially for your dad, to have this big wealth of humor just be verboten <laughs> with his son. Well, that's true. That I mean, true. I think the transgressive aspect is really funny when I think of what when I think of what I think is funny, a lot of it is transgressive. Now, when I think of myself as a parent, 
I'm the opposite of transgressive. I'm the one trying to lay down the rules. So it does preclude that whole area of humor that I, I guess I don't make those jokes. I feel like as a dad, I'm, I'm the biggest joke, the, the biggest hits in my family among my kids is when I do dorky things. Like when I do dorky dances, because that kind of plays into uh, what they already think that I'm a dork. Well, it does, but it it it, it 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 is transgressive in its own right, and 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 that's what you're not giving yourself credit for, because you're violating the the role of that, mm-hmm. and and they really dig that. That's really appreciated. I mean, look, you know, uh, f- reason I said they don't um, appreciate it yet, but they will, is not just based extent on my experience and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the particulars of that but but it's it's um, uh, it, it's also based on the fact that as part of the application procedure uh, the application to get into my class I have students um, you know write answers to certain questions and one of the f- questions I throw out there is what's the first thing you remember that made you laugh and of course, almost a hundred percent are from somebody in their family, you know, in their early family life, almost a hundred percent. And of that, a really high percent is dads and dad humors and dad doing things. And basically whenever dads do things that are frightening or confusing or inappropriate, or they're not sure how to take it first, and they're shocked by it and laugh and then, you know, enjoy it and want to see it again. They love that and they never forget it. And you can bet your ass it's the first thing they'll do when they have a kid. One kid wrote something about his dad threw a shoe out the window and it was so shocking that it made him laugh. And then his dad threw all his shoes out the window and he just couldn't stop laughing. And it wasn't until years later he found out that the dad continued. He had thrown one shoe out of the window for some stupid, random, momentary reason. And when he saw his kid laugh, he proceeded to throw all his shoes out the window. I mean, that is an interesting aspect to humor. And, and a lot of it is about feeling uncomfortable. But that's like a specific stripe of funny, right? No, listen, it's about play. Right. And that's where dads come in. It's about play. Of course, the whole nature of play is that there's an element of danger that's ultimately proven to be safe. Right. Right? I mean, there's a conflict. There's a danger. There's a risk. There's a something going on there. You're not quite sure. The outcome is not quite sure. But somehow, in, in the playing of it, dads make it, it's going to turn out all right. It's not ultimate danger. It's not life and death. Dad is here or mom is here within the family, this is going to be okay. And it's going to be forgiven or it's going to be, or or it's recognized that it's okay. Okay. We just made body humor and we're not going to make body humor in class, but we can do it here at home. And Mm -hmm. it's okay because it's true. And I think all that learning goes on with your parents and a lot of it obviously goes on with that. I think, I think, and I don't know if this is true. Uh, I, I'm at great risk here, but since it's a fatherly podcast, I, I would say you're, you possible. have a PhD. Everything you say is true. <laughs> exactly. It's, anything I say proves that I'm, you know, an old white man and should be <laughs> ignored. But, but, but the, but I do think that dads, you know, take maybe more physical risks 
yeah. you know, in their, in their play with kids and in their comic play with kids. And, and in a way it's both so shocking and at the same time, so much fun when it turns out to be safe that kids just remember it. I mean, I thought, I'd say, and then the next thing that happens after all that physical play it, it, it's wordplay. And kids are, you know, and that's where dad, that's the dad humor, I think, partly that you you may be referencing. Yeah, I mean, dad, I am, I am the, not the, I am the worst, but I frequently pun. And I remember when I was a kid, my, when my dad would make, like, pun jokes, I used to groan, as you said, a prerequisite um, generational uh, rebellion. Now I find myself making puns all the time. And one of my sons, a six-year-old, thinks it's complete bullshit. But my five-year-old thinks it's hilarious and like comes up with his own baby puns, you know? Um, exactly. Exactly. Word humor is funny and, because and your it's six-year-old not... will definitely pun for his kids. So that's that. That I can almost guarantee. Okay, so we'll be right back with Barnett Kelman, the Robin Williams Endowed Chair at USC. I'm excited to talk to him just as excited as I am to hear from these sponsors. Um, tell me about how your long career in the uh, directing stage productions and in television and film, how has that informed your humor? I mean, you've been professionally inculcating funny moments for years. Now you teach it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that seems logical to me. Uh, but no, I, I think that what really happened um, was that I didn't particularly start off in comedy. Um, you know, I, 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 was all, I was started very young as a director, and I would direct all sorts of things. But the things I directed and when I was an actor, the things I acted, and they always somehow seemed to have a large, you know, comedic element. And then the, the universe starts telling you to do things that they think you're good at. And I continue, you know, I got offered a lot of comedies and continued to do it and enjoy the hell out of it. So I found myself with a career that was kind of focused or skewed towards comedy. When I'm doing comedy, the last thing I'm thinking about is being funny. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw that that always got a response when I said that. And I knew that I was telling the truth. I knew that I was telling my truth. Um, uh, and I was something I sort of took for granted, but I could always see that people were surprised and it also kind of raised the question, well, then what am I thinking about? So I started to think about what are the things or what, what, what's, what process happens trying to slow down the process that seems to happen automatically when I just start doing something funny or saying something funny and, or, or observing something that, you know, that an actor does that has the potential if taken to the next step to be really funny. Right. You have this um, spark of funny, the spark of something that could be funny and it's your job as a director yeah. to shelter well, that. I uh, what happens with it was, I recognize when we've wandered into the zip code of comedy, that's my job. You know, like I'm a tour guide and I suddenly, you know, and here we go that we're in the area where this can be really funny what do we have to do to, to make that okay, uh, to make that funny? So I started to really think about that stuff only in the context of uh, wanting to, to teach it, wanting to explain it to others, because mm -hmm. the truth of the matter is that 
there is very, very, very little teaching of comedy. Of course, it's a sense that one has the same as music is a sense that one has, but people teach music. Right. But everybody says, well, you know, you've either got it or you don't in comedy. It's a knack. It's a, you know, you got to, and I don't question that for a second, but it doesn't mean it can't be developed. It doesn't mean it can't be fostered. And it doesn't mean that you can't learn, um, you know, how better to prepare yourself when comedy may strike, you know? So I have two questions based on that. One is, uh, I'm a huge Gene Wilder fan, and I know you worked with him for um, something wilder. I did. I sure did. Well, he, to me, his presence is at once both uh, kind of full of light and joy and then also something deeply melancholic about it. That's how I, I think that's why I relate so strongly to him. Well, that's very, very true. What that's was it exactly. like, you know, you you talked about being able to recognize when an actor moved into the zip code of funny. What was working with Gene like in that regard? Well, you know, almost more than anybody I've ever worked with, um, Gene had a very, had a very strong consciousness, uh, technical consciousness of his, of his own funny, of what he found funny and of how to go there. Um, there was nothing random about it whatsoever. And Chris, I think you're absolutely right. And Gene has told, told the story, I think autobi in his, I think in his book. And he told me, you know, he told it to me about, um, it did come out of a, a great sadness and a great worry. His comedy did, um, <laughs> among the many things he, you know, any kid, any anxiety, uh, that any kid has, uh, he also had a tremendous anxiety about his mother's health. She was she was an invalid, and and he found that he could make her laugh. And you know, it was a job early on, was to keep his mother from going over to a dark place. Um, and and I think Gene's comedy came comes out of uh, um, a sense of of fear and anxiety suddenly boiled over into hysteria. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was always and, at that that uh, that crest. Absolutely. He goes zero to 60. Um, and he always, when we were working on the show, he always wanted to find those triggers. He wanted to find situations and prompts, um, that, uh, that would make him hold it in, hold it in, hold it in, hold it in, and then ultimately lose it. Like when and that's what he was looking for. When Charlie now comes we, into the comes in and asks and gives him the gobstopper at the end. Yes, exactly. Um, just you, you know, as you're talking about Gene, I'm thinking about Andy Kaufman, and I'm thinking about a bunch of the other comedians that I like as an adult. And I think one of the things that I like about my sense of humor is when it it does feel dangerous. Like it feels like. Yeah, it's a conscious decision what's going on, but underneath is something really roiling and it's not safe. Like, it's not a safe area to be. Um, and You know, I think ultimately if it's safe, it's not comedy. And I think it's that's why comedy does make some people, um, you know, very uh, nervous and, uh, and, and insecure uh, because the whole thing that makes it, fun is you're not quite sure what's going on and you have to make a leap yourself and decide that this is a game but i think that like as a dad for instance i don't know if i want to expose my kids to that 
level of it really is an aggressive not just transgressive but sort of like an aggressive fucking with what's real and what's not what's safe and what's not and i think that's kind of i have a dual sensibility of i think being this extreme and absurd and unhinged is funny you know there's a lot of suffering in there too but for my kids i'm trying to provide them with a little bit of a safer area to play with, but it sounds like maybe I should just go all in and. Oh, absolutely! What 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 makes it safe? What makes it okay? Is the game structure. Without the game structure, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. In other words, a game of baseball. Somebody is throwing a ball in the direction of your head at ninety plus miles an hour. I mean, uh, if you don't know that's a game, <laughs> and if there weren't some rules around it, um. It would just be terror all the time. Uh, I think what happens is the kid, the child is unsure that first time. Yeah. In the, in the constancy and it's the repetition that makes it safe. It's the repetition. It's the patterning that makes it safe. And the kid gets used to that pattern and then looks forward to it and wants dad to repeat it. And then wants to set up patterns of his or her own. So, you know. We talked to a magician earlier in the program. The difference between a magician and a con man is that a magician tells you it's a trick. He's saying, you're going to be tricked and I'm going to trick you. And I think what you're saying, it's similar in humor writ large, especially this really funny uh, whitewater between danger and safety that a kid knows that what's happening, there's an element of risk and danger and uncertainty but ultimately it will smooth out. And my point to your point of, of your podcast is the reason the kid knows it's okay is cause it's only dad and dad would never hurt them. Now, if it's dad who around whom they are ultimately unsure of what dad would do, then it's not funny. Yeah. Let me, but if dad is a safe person, if a dad is a person of trust, then even when dad throws them in the air, which is not a safe place to be, and then catches them, there's a certain relief and sense that this will always be okay. And they laugh when that happens, and they never forget that. But here's the proof. Here's the big proof. I want to. I want to make sure. I want to make sure I I share this with you because this is a new one on me. This is why I'm so, this is why I'm presenting myself as so certain, not because of the doctorate, but (laughs) because of this experience. I have two daughters, one of whom's 30 and got married last year. And the other one who's 24 and who, um, has a relatively new boyfriend. Uh, but one that seems that she seems to be very fond of. And the one thing these two guys have in common, and they're completely different guys, and they're both wonderful guys, but my daughters are kind of like, first thing they both tell me is they think that their that their boyfriends think my jokes are funny. <laughs> <laughs> and they make stupid jokes like mine. And they laughed at, you know, the dumb joke that I texted or, or, or Instagrammed. Well, that'll make family affairs in the future much much smoother. It really does. And nothing could have made me more surprised than to find out that my daughters both liked guys who liked the dumb jokes that they thought were groaners. Well, this is a question I have for you to, to conclude our thought provoking 
and indeed hilarious interview. Um, did your kids think you were funny growing up? Uh, did my kids think, I, I think the whole, the whole pattern, um, that they, they certainly knew that I was always up for, for joking. And so they always wanted to bring me their jokes and play word games with me and stuff like that. I don't know if they thought I was funny or really believed I was funny. I think their favorite thing in the world was to see me lose it laughing. Right. What their favorite thing in the world is to see me just fall out because as a professional comedy guy, I, I have the disease of where I'll do a lot of, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm assessing it all the time and, and relating it to all, you know, all the other degrees of funny I've experienced in my life. And then when something overwhelms me and I really just lose it like a kid and I just, you know, I start weeping and my eyes close up. My kids absolutely love it. So I don't know if they, I don't know if they intellectually think I'm funny, but the point is they like playing funny right. with me. Well, Dr. Barnett Kelman, the Robin Williams Endowed Chair of Comedy at USC and Professor of Cinematic Arts, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, hopefully you learned a little, you laughed a little, you cried a little. That's it for this episode of The Fatherly Podcast. I want to thank Alan Kronzik, Grandpa Magic, Barnett Kelman, Dr. Comedy, for joining us today. I'm your host, Joshua David Stein. Look, if you have any questions about being a dad, about the podcast, about me, although I don't know why you would have questions about me, mostly about struggles you're having and questions you might want answered, give us a call at our New Jersey hotline. It's 732-416-4571. 732-416-4571. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast on iHeartRadio. This podcast was produced by Max Savage Levinson and me, Joshua David Stein, engineered by Diko Shatorma at Electric Indigo Studios in Brooklyn, New York. Our executive producer is Andrew Berman. See you next time for a conversation with Mark Riegelman II, who I think is the world's greatest playground designer. We're going to talk about playgrounds, privacy, and why a little bit of sinister ain't a bad thing. Then we're going to play with some of the hottest toys of 2018 and make a bunch of dirty jokes, and it'll be really fun, and you'll get to know what the best toys are. Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> sure. Great. Right